Thank you. Thank you so much for this warm welcome. And you don't know how much I miss apples. Uh, I love my work there. And I live with a driving, with a, a good enrollment and uh, um, innovation and innovative programs. Like uh, we have Artificial Intelligence Institute that is talking at the Silicon Valley and having Mira Lane of Microsoft <laughs> working with us. And NASA scientist is working with us on uh, what it means to be human in the age of artificial intelligence. So, so uh, I'm in, you know, uh, in my, with my pack, but I don't have apples there. And that is killing my soul. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm more grateful than I think you are that I'm here. <laughs> so uh, Diane alluded that uh, I uh, tried to read Matthew chapter uh, 21 through 16, which is a very familiar story that that uh, uh, quote unquote very generous uh, landowner went out to the market and hired workers throughout the day from very early morning to almost at the end of the working hours, and uh, he paid the same wage. And God is like this, is a main story. And I am thinking, really, uh, some of you know that I always choose uh, some text and then always ask, really? <laughs> so I try to read uh, that text through uh, Asian American transnational uh, feminist theological lens, uh, which I identify um, as an interstitial uh, perspective, uh, that in-between space that is not separated because that's uh, my identity. And that identity has been evolving because I crossed the multiple borders uh, physically and figuratively. So I can only read a text through my own experiences that expands me. Uh, so as I invite us to think about that, so, some of my own border crossing stories and my own fluid identity. And I don't know whether I have shared with any of you, but in 1991, when I tried to come to United States, because I had a sense of a call to ordain the ministry since age 13, but couldn't pursue that, because as a woman, I couldn't be ordained. Um, one very progressive uh, Presbyterian church and Korean Methodist church ordained the women and also Pentecostal church. But obviously, I was not a Pentecostal. And I studied uh, um, Presbyterian theology, and that was not me. And I just couldn't uh, live with a theology that I don't agree with. And so I became a, a Methodist uh, um, very intentionally. And Korean Methodists uh, studied ordaining women 20 years prior to United Methodist in 1930s. But until 1991, the year that I left home, uh, Book of Discipline uh, had uh, this line that uh, women had to be single if they were ordained, had to be single for the rest of their life. So that's not the theology that I would embrace, or it is not called that I sensed either. And I didn't want to be part of a system that doesn't recognize who I was. So I had to leave home. And so, uh, and to come here uh, to pursue uh, my call, I had to get, the first round was uh, getting United States visa. But without knowing the reason, I was rejected three times by very red hair, white woman uh, consulate in Seoul. And happened to be that usually you are assigned to different people, but I happened to be assigned to her three different times, the second and third time she didn't even look at my documents and saying that, that she cannot just grant visa. So that was my very first like, oh my God, what do I do with my life experience? And a week later, 
I got my visa having coffee at U.S. Ambassador's office. <laughs> it's because I was attending an amazing church, which is my home church in Korea, that studied 35 years ago as an alternative model to Korea by uh, highly intellectual uh, leaders of a society uh, that studied with a Bible study group of five families when one of my dearest professors of my alma mater got expelled from university and lost his job because he protected a student asking for democratization. And so he lost his job, he was in jail, and through that experience, uh, he realized that without transforming leaders, the democratization from bottom up alone will not uh, be efficient. So he studied a Bible study with a very highly educated uh, social leaders, and they, after three years of a Bible study, they decided to be an alternative uh, church to Korean church that is so focused on quantity and growth. So even today, the church doesn't own the church building, because, and then they always have a university professor as their um, theologian, as their uh, pastor and team ministry. And the 40% of uh, their budget is only operating, 30% social justice ministry, 30% education. And every uh, uh, moment, uh, big event of the church, they uh, publish a new book and they commission music and based on Korean traditional tune, and so it's, a, it's an amazing church. So I was a part of the church, and my, uh, I was an associate pastor of education. My Sunday school superintendent's husband happened to be the, uh, um, the advisor to Korean president. So he liked me, and he heard about my visa being rejected three times, and he called the US <laughs> embassy himself. Well, and I was invited, I got a call from U.S. Embassy and come to the front door, not the back door, and having coffee and they issued a visa. So these two very uh, contrast stories shows the, a, a lot of a vulnerability, marginalized experience, even I, I had at home, and women and couldn't be ordained, and also having access to the power and privilege. So throughout my life, that has been my experience. So I am an ordained clergy now, uh, compared to a lot of Korean American women. That gives uh, because uh, you 60 some percent of Korean Americans are living in the uh, United States are Christians. So having uh, clergy status is a huge privilege. But at the same time, last week I was just invited to be a, a keynote speaker by Korean community. In March, I was supposed to give. Uh, uh, keynote speech to Korean American uh, Christian women ecumenical group in Atlanta, which is a big group, and they want me to focus on le women's leadership. So they found me, they invited me, I booked all flight and everything, and a Korean male pastor who did a lot of Google search about me said that she's a liberation theologian, she thinks Christianity, Christian Christianity is all subscribed to colonialism, which is true. And I said, oh, only liberation theology? That's just so conservative for me. <laughs> but, but these women leaders, uh, rather than listening to their own instinct and wisdom, they decide to listen to their very young senior pastor in his 30s, uh, the largest uh, uh, Korean megachurch in the country, in Atlanta. And also, uh, he is a Presbyterian, and me being Methodist also was another problem, which I didn't know that Methodist is a problem. So, so I ordained the clergy, and at the same time, I got disinvited by this uh, much less experienced uh, Korean male clergy. 
and women listening to them. So again, power and privilege and marginalized experience within my own community. And, and also, as an immigrant woman who speaks with accent, if I don't say who, what I do, the racism and the being treated as if I'm an idiot, I don't know what I'm doing, is my daily experience. And, but at the same time, I'm a dean of a very pre prestigious theological school that is 127 years old. And uh, I am first, uh, I'm first a Korean-American woman theological school dean in North America, and I'm one of the four now out of a 259 ATS member schools, right? So I have a lot of power and privilege in my own institution. And because of my title, I appeared at MSNBC, Denver at Channel 9 News. I was on front page of a Denver Post and 5280 Magazine, which is a, a Denver version of a sunset, had a full story about me. And so I got a lot of a media exposure, but at the same time, uh, the, day, uh, the day after my installation, uh, last February in 2018, I was uh, driving to go to business meeting to meet uh, someone in uh, University of uh, uh, Regis University, Jesuit University, and woman tried to cross the uh, street where there is no traffic light. I stopped, she passed me, I started moving, and she turned around and started yelling at me. And when I roll my window down, she uh, noticed who I was. Uh, she was telling me that in this country, I shouldn't drive like the way I drove. So I knew what's coming, so I said, yes, uh, you know, in this you're right, in this country, if someone is kind to you, you say thank you. <laughs> it's what I said. <laughs> so again, you know, so I don't reside in one space. I have a such tremendous power and privilege and I also am an immigrant of a woman of a color who speak with accent. The, uh, the racism and mistreatment is my daily experience, including from some of my own students, right? So when this is my reality, I just cannot emphasize I am only immigrant woman who experienced racism and therefore I'm one of the oppressed alone because of my other part of my life and I have other privilege and, uh, prestigious uh, things. So that I uh, describe uh, where I am, my social location, my, uh, that forms my uh, uh, reading lens that I live with, try to live with interstitial integrity at interstitial spaces. I know it's a mouthful. So in other words, I live words between Asia and America, literally. And I live at centers and margins, multiple centers and multiple margins at the same time. And I live at home and foreign lands at the same time. Because when I go to Korea, it is not home home. It's a very different home. And my friends tease me that when I say Korean word that has a similar sound to S or L or R, I don't know how to say correct way in Korean any longer because my American accent is now coming up in my Korean words. And also I float in and out of multiple centers and margins and different locations while creating more figurative spaces along the way. And that's where I dwell. So about being an Asian American, uh, very uh, typically Asian American experiences and identity racism we face were 
described in two different ways that Asian Americans are model minority. Look at Boyang. She became the first Korean American uh, woman theological school dean in, um, uh, in North America. What a great role model, which I take it seriously. But at the same time, when you look at and that, analyze that as a con in, a, in a context of a US racism and hierarchical structure, she made it. What are you doing? Especially, what are you doing to other people of color, women of color? Why couldn't you be like her, that, that work hard, be diligent, do your best, achieve your goals? Especially, model minority myth is used to further discriminate against other people of color, especially blacks and Latinx. Then why do you complain? Why can't you do work harder so that you can become like a successful Asians? So model minority sounds good, but the model for whom? So it assumes that there are centers and power and then only those who are in centers decide that you deserve and you are now part of the club. So when Asian Americans uncritically embrace, oh, isn't that nice that we are a modern minority, we are grateful for this country, uh, accepted us as immigrants, that we are perpetuating this hierarchical racial oppression system that further marginalize other people of color even further. So, um, that's, but that, um, unfortunately, that has been main keyword to um, categorize Asian American uh, here um, in terms of our own location here. And so I reject that. Another one that uh, framed the Asian American experiences and identity in this country is a uh, perpetual foreigner. And when I talked about Ruth uh, and with Benny Liu and Steve Davis, and by the way, uh, Steve texted me that he misses you. And Benny uh, is now ILF's consultant to work with our PhD students of color. So he's envious that I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and he will appear in court uh, soon. So when we did uh, um, Ruth and uh, uh, several years ago in Winter Bible Institute, uh, I extens extensively talked about uh, Asian American being a perpetual foreigner. Regardless of how long you have been here, people ask, where are you from? And I would say, from Berkeley. <laughs> and people say, where are you really from? And I have a friend, Gail Yi, uh, who is a third generation Chinese American, who is uh, the first woman of color and first Asian American president of a society of biblical literature, um, which is a huge thing. And she grew up in Chicago in African-American neighborhood. She doesn't speak a word of Chinese. I read the Chinese, she doesn't. But she's, she retired in Pilgrim Place in Southern California. People still ask where she's from. She's a third generation in her 70s. So Asian-Americans, unlike African-Americans, since uh, you, know, you have been here longer, people see that you are part of this country, but Asian-Americans, no matter how long we have been here, we are always foreigner. We don't belong here. So that's uh, um, uh, given identity markers uh, by uh, mainline society to Asian Americans, and some embrace it, some like me reject it, and, and I don't think that those two are healthy identity markers because it further perpetuate and it further also marginalize our own selves by accepting that, that we are perpetual foreigner.
So I was looking at alternative uh, term that Dr. Vira Nakashima Brock, uh, whose work uh, some of you know that uh, uh, when I lived in Berkeley, she enjoyed uh, coming to Epworth once in a while. She's a disciple. And she uh, is biologically half Japanese. Her mother is Japanese. And her biological father is a Puerto Rican. When her father was a military officer in Japan, in Hukuoka, her mother was a, a nurse in military hospital, they met. But that relationship didn't work out. So she was raised by her Japanese uh, um, uh, grandparents. And then her mother remarried to a white man, uh, another American soldier, Mr. Brock, and who adopted her. And she didn't know anything about her uh, Puerto Rican father until her mother, after her mother passed in her 30s. So she grew up uh, saying, thinking that she's a uh, Japanese, uh, uh, half Japanese American, and her father was a military in military, so she uh, lived in all over the world and uh, Europe and all over America. But she identified herself as uh, Asian American because of her mother's upbringing at home. And then her, after her mother passed, uh, someone told her that, by the way, you have a biological father who is a Puerto Rican. And she found them living in Central Valley. So she has a two. White, uh, half, white, half white, half Japanese American younger siblings. She has uh, three Puerto Rican American brothers. And she lived uh, four different continents, right? And Asia and Europe, United States, and Latin America. Also, and she's, uh, uh, in my opinion, one of the most important theologians of our time. So struggling with her own identity, she came across this um, term. Uh, she was a, a pre-med pre uh, in college. So when she came across this term interstitial, which is a biology term that describes tissues situated in vital organs to hold together and nourish many diverse body parts, even as it's neither the parts nor separate from them. So there, that's her picture. She's a Japanese-American, but she also looks like a Latina. And, but her main identity is that she's an Asian-American. And so at uh, the picture, it's a frozen human uh, bile duct tissue uh, imaged by fluorescent microscopy demonstrate that not like a pattern in connective tissue of the interstitium. So, so she said, that's who I am, interstitial. And then she coined this term that the interstitial integrity, which means it's a monumental uh, marking of uh, you know, that uh, identity that making meaning out of multiple words by refusing to disconnect from any of them while not pledging allegiance to a singular one. I belong to everything, and I'm not being faithful to one thing either. I'm everything, and not separated, but I'm not the one, the, this one. I'm not either, either fully Asian, fully American. I'm in between. I'm both. And there are multiple things that connect me, and I also nourish multiple organs, either, even though I'm not one of them. So that's uh, how she uh, settled with her own identity. And so in this, uh, uh, the, it, she says that this, uh, Interstitial integrity allows us to have a space for the multiple social locations of identity in multi-transcultural context that you don't have to choose. 
You are everything and in between and beyond. And it also allows a space where you, we can evaluate our own behavior because I don't, I'm not just the one, I am multiple. And then when we behave in certain particular way, wait a minute, what, what, where are your others? Like uh, someone like me, I have uh, such a privilege and power, but if I insist on my own oppressed immigrant experience, uh, wait a minute, what about your economic status here? What about your PhD? What about enormous power you exercise over your faculty and students? That, that even though you're a woman of color with speaking with accent, that you can call your white male senior professor that this is not acceptable. It's because of my power I can do that, right? So if I own, I'm only insisting that I'm oppressed immigrant, of, uh, immigrant woman of color speaking with accent, uh, the miserable, that's, that's, that's uh, very unjust, right? So it allows a space where we can evaluate our own behavior and exercise a moral discrimination and self-evaluation. Also, Brock says that this is space that mandates those of us who dwell in that space to engage in solidarity with others who also live in that space. Because you're thinking about cells in interstitial space, organs. I, you know, we all need each other, one another. Otherwise, our organ collapse and we die. No one survives. So therefore, she says, this is a, a, being a dwelling in this space mandates us to be in solidarity with others, that there is no choice. So that I take as my also my own um, social location and key identity marker, that interstitial uh, integrity that I try to live with. So this, uh, in, you know, living uh, with the interstitial, interstitial integrity in interstitial space means that I um, reject binary and dualistic perspectives. Either or is not working because I'm both and more. And also, in being, you know, living with interstitial integrity means that I am pursuing justice for my own self and my own people, not at the cost of somebody else's, because we are in solidarity. Often, among people of color, I will say a little more later, that what's happening is that we are being played by the, the power at the center that uh, we call, we do oppression Olympics. You are more, you know, you Asians are uh, not, not as oppressed as we are, so therefore shut up, <laughs> right? Or, or do, what do you know about being an Asian American? Shut up, so this oppression Olympics. But when we do that, we make a center even stronger at the cost of uh, somebody else's, right? So that, being an interstitial space means I reject that, no dualism, no oppression Olympics, and also I recognize both oppressed and prestigious status of mine, which is both of my identities. And I have a lot of power, but I also have uh, this, you know, put down experience at the same time. Sometimes it happens at, at, within the same meeting in an hour. Otherwise, when I don't embrace this identity, I unintentionally participate in perpetuating racially, economically, socio-politically hierarchical system by putting minoritized people against one another and further minoritize other people who are less privileged than myself. So if that is my identity marker and space and my social location, 
I uh, take that uh, uh, reading scripture from that space is a reading that brings justice for the most marginalized uh, people through solidarity. And I need to use my, uh, my work for equality through equity for so just uh, solidarity, not just uh, equality. But I need to bring equity so that the solidarity can work. Any questions so far? So then let's do some. Equality is that everyone is equal. Equity is that not everyone starts at the same place. So therefore, some people have a more uh, um, status to start at the same place. But that is still, you know, still at the space of uh, power dynamics. So eventual goal is a liberation that, 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 that the equity and equality doesn't need. So that is my scholarly goal, that I'm working for liberation of all people uh, that doesn't need even equity over some people. And that I see that as a reign of God and mandate of shalom creating on earth. So with that, I tried to read a, a text from Matthew. And by the way, um, literally, I, I, saw, I told uh, Kala and other speakers that uh, when invitation came, that day, I literally finished a chapter, 20-some uh, uh, page, a chapter that will be in part of uh, uh, Oxford uh, series in uh, uh, biblical interpretation. It will be Oxford um, uh, com companion of a Korean-American biblical interpretation. 26 authors, I'm the only non-Bible scholars, but somehow I got included. So this is uh, uh, the chapter coming out at the end of this year. So, um, so from this interstitial space, I wanted to read this story because I always had a question. God is like, you know, uh, yes, God is a, a very God of a, a equality here that everyone got paid regardless of when you started working. But is it really fair to people who studied all, who worked all day in uh, blazing heat, the killing heat in Israel in, in a summertime? So let's see. How did you learn about this story? You know, what is the main message? For me, the how, you know, both in Korea and the United States, uh, whenever I listen to uh, preaching uh, on this text, a very common thing I heard was uh, this is a quintessential uh, exam uh, ex uh, example of a God's equality. The subject is a God's equality, generous God's equality. But me being whom, who I am, I say, really? <laughs> and so the reason why God, it, 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 you know, many people has, uh, have thought that this is a story about equality. And then the landowner who uh, hired the people throughout the day and paid the same amount uh, was likened to be a God of a generosity. And so the landowner was an embodiment of a generous God. And that's the main message. And, and I, again, went back to all these uh, com major commentaries, and that's the main message of this text, this parable. So here, um, he hired the people throughout the day, which is a very unusual hiring practice, which makes him stand out, I guess. And then at the end, uh, he paid the uh, same amount to every worker, starting from people who were 
hired at the last moment, maybe 30 minutes before the work was done. And then uh, there are you know, other people who hired before that. Oh, so if someone who worked only for 30 minutes uh, got, had a day, day of uh, wage denarius, maybe I will, he will, he's so generous, he will pay me more, pay us more, but didn't happen. He paid the same amount. And so the first hired workers this, uh, you know, complained, what about us? We worked 12 hours today and they worked 30 minutes. How could you pay the same amount? And he said, what's your problem? Didn't you make a contract with me that you're gonna get paid for a day's, day's wage? And uh, it's uh, my money and I'm using my money whatever way that I want. What's, what's wrong with you? What's the problem? And conversation shuts down and God is like this, is a story. And the first will be the last, and the last will be the first. So as I look at um, this story, there are a lot of allegorical uh, interpretations were made. And one that familiar with me, but also according to uh, several key Bible scholars who overviewed the history of interpretation, the last hired workers are very much like that to Gentile Christians like us, unless you are Jewish people. So Gentile Christians, and then the first hired ones are Jewish people who are dissatisfied with God's generosity to the Gentiles. So most prevailing, very prevailing interpretation of this parable is anti-Semitic interpretation that the Jews is the problem and God chose the Gentiles to do God's work. That's a very prevailing interpretation. And then also, uh, very Christian Protestantism's uh, uh, soteriologist, theology, uh, sol uh, salvation focused interpretation that the landowner, who is like a God who justifies the humans irrespective of our sins and efforts for salvation through good work. That the last hired workers didn't work much, but God said, uh, the land said, hey, uh, Denarius, you're good, go home. And so that's, it's like a God uh, saving us regardless of who we are. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard we worked for our own salvation. And the first hired workers are like to, to those who pursue moral perfection for salvation that just challenge God's salvific plan. So therefore they don't get it. They really don't get, don't get God's grace because they are so fixated on uh, salvation through work, being a good person. So that, those are two are the mainstream uh, uh, two interpretations. So in other words, uh, in sum, there is a prevailing interpretable reading lens of the parable teaches us certain things, equating the land road with God whose freedom and generosity is the central theme, the reading the parable through Christian salvation historical lenses, and uh, putting the first and last hired workers on opposite sides to uh, contrast God's generosity with the human disgruntlement. So these two uh, groups of workers are very in opposite end uh, in terms of their relationship to God. What does it teach? Implicitly, explicitly, this type of interpretation teaches certain messages beyond what it said. It says binary perspectives that divide the characters and the world itself into good and evil, for and against God. It's as if we all live in very clear-cut uh, space with a very rigid boundaries, which uh, someone like me who identifies 
myself as a, a person in interstitial space cannot live with. And second message it teaches is the most deprived, minoritized, and systematically oppressed people are used to express, promote the dichotomous worldviews that traditional interpreters themselves may hold to. So I will get into that, but first hire the workers and last hire the workers. They were at the bottom of the society. Their social status was lower than slaves. And, but they are used to put uh, contrast and as if uh, they are the ones who make those decisions that the problems. Third implicit lesson it teaches is that it encourages people like us, readers, to take a side and compete with each other. Are you like a first hired workers? Are you a last hired workers? As a minister and as a dean of a faculty, I want, rather want to have first hired workers who work hard to make things happen. I don't need the people who give service only 30 minutes and do, okay, I have done my share. I don't need them. To, make, to run an institution, I need more first hired workers. But this uh, interpretation puts people against the, uh, at the, uh, each other at the, and then uh, for, sometimes force us to choose a take a side rather than creating a system that works for all of us through collaboration. Then we need to look at some facts and uh, reality. So a uh, wonderful biblical scholar, William Herjok, Bill Herjok, um, who is a post-colonial uh, New Testament scholar, says uh, to understand this text, we need to understand the latifundialization phenomenon of Galilee during the first century. Very hard word, <laughs> right? Very hard word. So latifundialization is the process of a land accumulation large estates, hence uh, latifundia, in the hands of a few wealthy landowners to the deprivation of the peasantry. That's uh, uh, one sentence definition. So the core, the core governing principle of a Roman empire is uh, you conquer the land, you conquer the people, you need to do something to control the land, conquer the territories, right? subjugated territories. So they redivide the land and give them to their collaborators to control. And they allow these, uh, uh, new, their collaborators uh, uh, to have a lot of power over it. Right? So, um, so these rich people who collaborate with Rome, Rome's occupation, get richer have more land, more possessions. And to keep that, they need to exploit people so that they can maintain their own uh, life like uh, land, you know, as landowners elites, but also they need to provide the very lavish goods to the emperor and to leaders in Rome. So they, the more they exploit people, the more goods they get so that they can live like an emperor and then they send something. So Rome has nothing to lose by doing that so that was uh, <clears throat> the reorganization and redistribution of uh, land that uh, was uh, one of the key ways the Roman Empire uh, controlled uh, their territory. So as this uh, so it has been going on for a few centuries, but especially during the first century in Galilee, this got even uh, 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 intensified, uh, this process of latifundialization. Uh, so as a result, a large number of displaced people happened and many of them became day laborers. 
Another thing that was happening was uh, the pilgrim business was so good business. You know, even in Israel now, well, I was there in December 2018 to visit some family friends. And as a Korean woman, I have a Jewish friends, Jewish family living in Israel. And also, my late husband, Archer, uh, whom I think Susan knows, that uh, he was very active in Israel-Palestine uh, peace movement. So he had friends both, in both sides. And when they saw my Facebook that I travel all over the world, but ever since Archer died, I never went back to Israel, they said, uh, we feel abandoned by you. So I got ticket right away, and I was there, and I was uh, uh, in uh, Jericho and Bethlehem for my, with my um, Palestinian friends at their house, and I was with my Jewish family in other days, and then it was an interesting experience that I'm being dropped at a quote-unquote neutral zone at gas station, and then changing car, and then going to different uh, areas that the Jews or the other ways they can travel to each other. So anyway, so pilgrim, uh, and, and so while in Israel, uh, that uh, uh, where Jesus was baptized, I have a picture that says, uh, on sale, water of a Jordan River water, two, three, two, you know, buy, buy one, get one free in two shekels, something like that, baptismal water. So I brought them, and it's still in my refrigerator, and uh, <laughs> So that's a pilgrim business, right? Pilgrim business. So the, not only the uh, Jerusalem elites uh, monopolize the, the land, but they also monopolize the pilgrim business. And people came from all over the world. So then with the money they made through this business, they invested in land, and, and they acquired the small farms with a, uh, a very uh, exploitative, uh, exploiting uh, power and that small farmers growing grains, and then they uh, uh, forcefully um, took those farm lands away because uh, uh, these farmers uh, usually are uh, debtors to the Jerusalem elites for to pay tax and to cover growing expense of farming. So then uh, these uh, Jerusalem elites will convert them to vineyards because it it has gives them higher return. And also, they made loans to the peasants in need of increasing expenses for farming and taxes. And often, they couldn't pay back because of interest and uh, deflation, inflation. So the growth of defaults on loans and foreclosures are very, very common thing in the first century. And also, depression of wages because the people are competing for limited jobs. And, and then land got forfeited. And then these tenant farmers, farmers become day laborers and their wives and children becoming contingent workers for their lenders, usually working in their own, their, used to be their own farm, but that's not their own farms any longer. Sound very familiar? So same thing I saw uh, in 2015 or 16 in Colombia. I took uh, 13 students uh, as a director of a change maker fellowship program of a PSR, and we were in Colombia for about two weeks. The first left, upper left, is uh, open pit mining done by Drummond. And people in this re that region, usually farmers and fishers, Afro-Colombians uh, who were brought there as slaves, lived there for 200 to 300 years, and suddenly uh, Drummond showed up and uh, wiped their land and uh, out and doing 
mining and blocking their access to water. And so many people being born deformed and they didn't even access to health care. We spoke to uh, Doctors Without Borders. They were aware of the situation, but they said they were not going to do that because they were threatened by Drummond uh, for lawsuit. And right side, so those people who lost their access to water, their own farmland, Coca-Cola is selling water like that to people for drinking. That's what Coca-Cola is doing. And then far uh, down left is a Chiquita Bananas, who was one of the worst displaced, displaced uh, company that displacing people. Chiquita Bananas, United Fruits, and Delmont. So when we came back to PSR and, and student went to dining hall, having this uh, eye-opening transformative experience, and then we have a Coca-Cola fountain and Delmont um, canned goods, Chiquita Bananas are sitting there and they started to cry because uh, they feel so useless in this enormous power that they were not only doing that, but they're also displacing people. I have met people who were displaced four times, someone who lost her mind because she saw her husband being killed in her presence because he registered for uh, uh, displacement. And so we might sitting in a building that is fueled by Drummond power, whatever. We consume Dasani bottled water and all that, and we have such a privilege. So same thing is just happening, not just in my in our own neighborhood, but by our own country. It is happening everywhere. Student, a student from Philippines said that the same thing is happening by U.S. companies in the Philippines. Exact, almost identical things. So, first century, 21st century, the only difference is the empire's name is different. Right? So, then in that context, so these people who become day laborers, they used to be small farm owners reduced to day laborers. And another kind of day laborers is that those who are born to be day laborers, they are usually a second third, fourth children of uh, farmers. And because of uh, the inflation and they couldn't uh, feed their family, so the first child will succeed the farm. But the rest of the children, male children, when they become uh, big enough to consume more than um, that the family could provide, they became day laborers in their teens, early teens. And that's the first century in uh, Galilee. So then, so in living in uh, first century, losing, being kicked out of a house because the family kicked them out, you need to be your own. And that means that you lose entire system of support and security, that you don't have any system that protects you. And, and then so they were all often called the expendables. And they could only find the work once in a while and until they die from complications of a malnutritional disease. So probably, I think, the last hired workers, who no one hired them because they look so weak to work, probably were those uh, expendables. And maybe the first hired workers were the small farm owners that couldn't, had to work more to pay tax. So they laborers uh, worked only when recruited, especially if they had lost their own land and they had to back when they could not work. 
and day laborers competed with the other peasants who still owned their land but worked as day laborers to su supplement their substance living. So here, it gets, it's getting worse and worse. You lost your land, you're kicked out of your family, you lost all your protection system, you're competing with each other for this small, tiny thing. So the way that the, uh, you know, it worked well for Roman Empire was that, that they gave land to all these, their collaborators who controlled all, the, all these people. They didn't have to control this. And then competing oppression Olympics happening among minoritized, marginalized, oppressed people. And they're, they're so fighting uh, with each other, busy fighting with each other. And they created a, like a horizontal hostility among themselves and also internalized oppression. So uh, Roman Empire is a policy of uh, conquer and divide. And that is also uh, coupled with uh, um, internalized oppression that leads into horizontal hostility. Worked well for Rome. And it's still how this uh, US empire works. And so a little more about day laborers. So they were lower than slaves, as I said earlier, because uh, slaves were significant economic assets to Roman Empire's landowners. Therefore, they had to feed their slaves uh, who do most of the work uh, during uh, non-season and throughout the season. Day laborers were only hired during harvest season. So at least the slaves were pro uh, provided with food and housing, but day laborers, they were kind of slaves with no protection who had to work at their own risk. So because they were so, so vulnerable, landowners united, came up with these horrible policies that many landowners exploited them, came up with a brutal employment condition that includes an agreement on wage fixing. No, so they, they said no wage, uh, in a, always a denario, one denarius. They uh, refused to uh, hire the same worker for two consecutive days. Because then if you are hired two days in a row, this person is making a little bit better, therefore they're gonna have a little more thinking power. And barring workers from demanding any high quality food or overeating harvested produce. So working on this chapter, when I was in Israel, I asked my friend, my Jewish family, to take me to uh, Jezreel uh, Valley, which is the most fertile uh, area, and because I wanted to understand uh, the background of this uh, physically. Really green, wonderful, very fertile, even during that time. Probably background is there because it's in Galilee area. So they couldn't understand. I never, they said, I never had anyone us asking us to take a Jezreel Valley <laughs> farmland. And so the, also the talking of wage, the fixed, fixed wage, uh, one denarius per day is a fixed wage. And it's very typical, but the problem is uh, they were not consistently hired, uh, therefore they could not survive. And they wander around different regions looking for more work below the subsistence level of living conditions they forced to back before dying from malnutrition. It's a very common thing. And landowners are shutting down any wage negotiation when uh, first hire the workers. They, you paid them a denarius even though they worked only 30 minutes. So what about me who worked for 12 hours? They shut it down. Didn't you agree with me? And desperate workers accepting any offer. 
with hopes to receive some portion of a denarius to maintain their very precarious existence was a daily reality of that time. And the majority audience of Jesus' message was those people. And that's what we keep hearing, parables. And kingdom of God is given to you. Blessed you are who are suffered, who are poor. So he was preaching the message of hope to these people who didn't have any hope, anything to hope, be hopeful. So having this as a background, is he still generous owner? I see, what I see is he's a typical urban elite estate owner who accumulated wealth at the cost of poor laborers. And he was, uh, you know, the story shows very well a typical divide and impera, divide and conquer tactic of a Roman Empire. And the put, it puts the lowest class people against each other. And the, the landowner is very good at that. So, when the, the first hired workers uh, grumbled against, you know, about their wage, it says, text says a group of people did that. He chose to speak to only one, very firstly. And so the lesson is, uh, see, if you do this to me, see what's going to happen to you. Look at this guy. And that guy or that group never talks back in the text. And so, it's a sign of a internalized oppression. That's who they are. And then also in story, uh, first, uh, you know, even the story doesn't say anything about first hired workers, last hired workers in uh, dispute. But you portray this group in this very binary ways, and they know they have been competing for the same work in the same neighborhood next day. So because of this guy, I cannot get this job. And this, uh, it, it, it builds a horizontal hostility among most marginalized and minoritized people. So, so the text is nothing about the generous landowner, according to me and a lot of other scholars, especially Shreka Nalavala, who is an Indian Dalit woman theologian, says the wealth and power disparity is neither challenged nor reversed. Here, if he was a really generous landowner, he could have come up with a different system, using his wealth, rather than doing that, pick and choose. That this parable, as it is, teaches its audience that inequality between the owner and workers, and among workers, is normative, and it becomes very internalized. Right? It becomes a problem. So then we have a dilemma here. So. I deconstructed the text, but the first verse says, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. What do I do with it? Because the kingdom of God is like this. Do you want to be in that farm? We all, you know, we who self-identify ourselves as Christian and take uh, social justice and salvation for all seriously, is that where we want to be? Then the, here, the question that we need to ask, then how do we need to read a parable? And now Benny Liu shows up here. So Benny Liu, and also my other colleague, who is deceased, used to be at PSR, Dr. Luisa Shatroff, who is, was a leading German feminist New Testament scholar in Europe. 
they both said the same thing, that, that there are two different ways to read the parable. One is a correspondence and an allegory. It's God is like. The other one is a contrast. And certain parables need to be read as contrast. So Benny Liu argues that this parable needs to be read as a contrast rather than as a correspondence. This is direct quote. Matthew's audience was very familiar with the misery and injustice towards the poor because they were the very victims of that social, economic, political reality. In this parable, Jesus contrasts God's vision and mercy for them and others who are living under the threat of ongoing and systematic foreclosures, was uh, counting uh, on his listeners to identify the victims of the system in the story. Jesus was inviting his listeners to rethink the norm by which exclusion, dehumanizing, exploitation, and other forms of oppression were justified. So, as the listeners hear this parable, they saw themselves in the story. And so Jesus is inviting, God is nothing like this. The message that I bring for the reign of God is totally opposite to this story, that the norm that you have accepted and challenge the norm is a main message. So here, a picture of God's reign on earth, not ours, <laughs> on earth, that Jesus is teaching through this parable. And so, so going back to Luigi Shatrov, so who also is reading this parable as contrast, so she says, the key clue to read this parable is the last verse. The last will be the first, and the first, the last. And so traditionally, this anti-Semitic reading or very Protestant salvation history reading uh, would regard that verse as uh, the last one is Gentiles, the first one is Jews, or uh, you know, in God's salvation that uh, there is no last, you know, um, time to be the first that, that God loves you. But that's very individualistic reading. But Shatrov emphasized that uh, here, the last are the all marginalized people of the time, including both the first and last hired workers. You are the, uh, you are the most marginalized people. And you all belong to God. Not putting them against each other, but you need to, you are embraced by God. We are in solidarity with each other. The system is the problem that we need to change. So broader context, the broader context of Matthew's gospel, according to her, depicts a very tender picture of the marginalized living in Palestine of the first century and their suffering. Therefore, she also reads Beatitudes in a very similar way that it is not individual, but the most marginalized people. You are, you are the blessed ones. You are the ones that, that ten, ten, uh, tenderly uh, hold by God. And you are at the God's house and God's reign. You are not ex, uh, exploited. You are not excluded ones, dehumanized ones, but God cares about you. It's the main message that she says. So uh, as uh, our Jewish uh, uh, friends, uh, understand that shalom is not peace alone. It is uh, God's justice and peace and compassion permeates every corner of uh, our lives. 
therefore in which no one is marginalized, no one is discriminated, but everyone has an equal share of justice and peace and authority and status. So Shatrov uh, and Benny Liu's uh, interpretation is that this message is an invitation to the most marginalized people uh, to go against the social norm that dehumanize them. Be in solidarity, knowing that you matter is the main message. So I crossed many borders. My identity have changed. And I live with a very fluid identity. So from that lens, I read this story. And another lesson that I'm getting uh, on, about my own borders is that when I literally see day laborers standing on the street corner, literally, and I just cannot emphasize my own marginalized experience alone because I am one of the most privileged marginalized people. In fact, in 2018, women's status policy statistics say that after white men and Asian men, Asian women are the third in economic status in this country, more than white women's earning, according to 2018. So if I'm in this space, I cannot just emphasize my immigration experience alone, or I cannot just compartmentalize my life, right? So I need to be in solidarity movement. And I need to overcome any bound binary worldviews embedded in hierarchical and colonial social structures. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to teach here. That's my reading that use my own power, wealth, privilege, and other uh, achieved status for equity and justice, equity for others who are not there yet. And otherwise, I become a dangerous tool controlling from distance, like the Jerusalem urban elites that were co-opted by Rome. So that's my reading of this text from the interstitial space. Thank you. Thank you.